was hoping to get your take on it. I read um, from Ajahn Chinisaro. Uh, it seems that his take on self, not self, is that, or at least my understanding of it, was that the Buddha never said that there was not a self. He mm -hmm. just said that the things that we think are the self usually are not the self. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's one. That's that's kind of it's a little misleading, maybe to put it, to state it that way. But um, I mean, not not intentionally misleading, but like one one could possibly get the right, the wrong idea. Um, there's the um, the Buddha constantly refers to himself and you and others in a conventional sense, right? And there's several times when he talks about how he, when he uses language, he's using it in the conventional sense, but without misunderstanding um, what's being indicated. Uh, so you could say, like, in a conventional sense, there is a self, right? In a, um, just like in a conventional sense, there is, you know, an economy. Right, uh, you know, there, there, there is history. But when you try to, when you try to point, like, what is the economy? Um, all you really have is, you know, like an agreement that this must be like some component of the economy. But what the economy actually is is very difficult to, to, line out. We're very sure that there is one, but you know, you can't. Well, is money the economy? Well, no. You know, is is labor the economy? Not. Not exactly, you know. I mean, obviously, labor and money are uh, elements that we usually kind of glom together in the aggregate that we are calling the economy. And the self is kind of like that, too. So what the Buddha is having us do is de-aggregate it and look at each one of the components on their, on their own. And um, it, can, it can lead to a sense of mystification. I, you know, I can tell there's a self, and you know, I can feel it. I mean, I'm constantly experiencing the self. Everything's happening from my point of view. And yet, when I actually look at form, I can see very clearly that it can't possibly be me or who I am. So, you know, well, what is the self, you know? So, so you could, it, this is what I mean by misleading, it could send you on this, this search to discover the true self. And actually, there's several religions based on this idea that there's a true self that you have to discover in order to, uh, in order to finally be enlightened. And... Uh, I don't know if <clears throat> P.A. Piuto, I haven't read his stuff. I mean, I started reading it, but I, it was just not my cup of tea, so. But um, but I think the reason that Ajahn Tanisro speaks about the Buddha never said there is no self because there's several suttas in which the Buddha's talking about uh, extremism. Right? Um, I'm sure you've heard it many times, by avoiding these two extremes, the Tathagata has realized the middle way. And uh, he brings up this issue of, of our tendency to grasp at solid answers, at conclusive, decisive truth as a tendency, uh, 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 an extremist tendency. And 
whenever one goes to an extreme, one can't help but go too far. So uh, I think this is part of the reason why Ajahn Chah liked to translate anicca as uncertain rather than merely impermanent. It's impermanent for sure too, but, but it's also when we, when we call something a chicken, you know, if it's, it looks like a chicken and we call it a chicken, um, we've reduced that phenomena to like a symbol in our mind. And the symbol in our mind is very static. But the phenomena in the outside world is very dynamic. And from a conventional point of view, of course, it doesn't really matter. The symbol's good enough for most purposes. But because we operate with these symbols in our minds, we take the symbols as being the truth. We take them as being... Uh, we, we accept the symbols as uh, disclosing all there is to know. Right? So once you know something's a chicken, you don't have to investigate any further. Right? It's like it's the labels there, you know, chicken, tree, person, you know, um, good person, bad person, ugly person. And so our minds can label all kinds of stuff. And once, it's, once a label's been assigned to something, then most of its uh, uncertainty has been removed by our minds, uh, symbolizing it. With, because the symbol has a certain, has a quality of certitude to it. And it's because the symbol's coming from our mind. It's basically our symbol. Um, and we've forgotten how we create, how it came to be in the first place. We've, we assume that the symbol is sort of eternal, representative of something which is really ontologically true, rather than merely um, symbologically represented. Right? So uh, the certainty that we that we think things have is coming because of this information processing aspect of our mind. Our mind like symbols, it's really good at processing them. So our language is entirely made of symbols. Every concept is a symbolic representation of something, some, say, recurrent uh, phenomena that we, that we become conscious of at one time or another. So the first time you see a chicken, it's this magical creature from you know, outer space, and it's, it's, it's completely baffling. And if you see a chicken when you're two, it's just like, <laughs> what is that? <laughs> right? But when you see your chicken when you're 22, it's like, eh, chicken. <laughs> but it's, it's, it's the phenomenon hasn't really changed that much, right? But our, our, our stance relative to it has been now veiled by our symbol. All we see is the symbol. We don't actually see the, you know, we don't, we don't have to open this to see the, the true phenomenological um, mystery of what's manifesting there in that experience of chicken, right? So um, when you first encounter something truly novel, like when you're two years old and you encounter your first chicken, um, you really don't have any, you can't say anything for certain about it other than it's just amazing, you know? But you can't, you can't say what it is, you can't, you can't certify it, you can't, you can't make it static. But after a couple of encounters, then your mind automatically starts kind of categorizing it and coming up with, a, with some kind of a, uh, a proto-symbol, you could say. And then eventually someone gives you a word to apply to that proto-label, and they show you other examples, and now you've got the whole category down, and you're good to move on to some other thing. Right. <clears throat> so because of the way that we learn about our world, um, we end up 
when we're adults with a world that's represented by a whole bunch of static symbols which seem to be solid and real and true and certain. And they're just not. But it's not to say that there is no chicken. <laughs> but it's the chicken symbol isn't the thing that you think it is. Right? Or the, the phenomenon that you're labeling chicken isn't actually the symbol. Right? There's a difference between the phenomena and the symbol in our mind. And being able to see how the mind symbolizes things, how it, how it takes a dynamic, um, amazing, completely inexplicable, miraculous phenomenon that's happening spontaneously by itself, more or less, and without our, we're kind of like just the stunned witnesses of this magical thing, um, which is inherently uncertain, inherently undefined. Our mind will go, chicken. And then that's the end of it, right? We're not, there's nothing more amazing up there. It's, it's all gone. I think it's, that's part of the reason why people like to take um, hallucinogenic drugs, because it, it, it shuts down the symbol maker for a while, and then you just encounter the world in a much more direct way. Which is, and you're, you're amazed by it. It's, and the world's actually amazing, but our, our mental filters are constantly de-amazing it so that we can optimize our ability to survive and, and notice opportunities and exploit. Because yeah, that's what nature evolved us for. Not to go around being going like, wow, wow, all the time. Because <laughs> you'll get eaten by a tiger. <laughs> but, but, to be, but so there's, there's a, you could say, a natural reason why our minds are designed that way or why they act that way. But the, the, one, of the, uh, one of the unfortunate side effects about which nature doesn't care, it's like, t- you know, tough luck for you, um, is that you also symbolize the experience of being a person as me. There's a symbol, the mental symbol of self that has a kind of a very solid, concrete, static representation in the mind. And so that's why you always seem to be the same person, because your mind keeps imposing the same symbol on your experience. Oh, it's me. Yeah, here I am. Right. And, um, but just like the chicken, the experience of what you're calling, what you're putting the label on, doesn't have that kind of static quality at all. It's very, very dynamic. It doesn't have anything that you can really sort of point at and say, well, there's the essence of, of you know. You recognize that these are recurring, maybe you can say they're recurring qualities or they've, they've experienced many times before. So, you know, your emotional experiences or your, the way that you react to things or your, your mental attitudes or um, uh, uh, the areas of expertise that you've developed, all these things that you've, you're, you might mentally own and, and label as part of me or who I am, um, they, they might seem to have kind of a recurring, uh, dependable nature, but most of the dependability of them is because we keep re-evoking them. And, and we actually, our minds, because of, the symbol, because of the symbol processor, interprets most of what happens uh, as like perfectly normal. Same old thing. I always do it like, I'm always like this. This is how I always am. It doesn't notice all the kind of tiny variations and stuff that make it so that there's never, no two moments are the same. So the, the, what the Buddha is pointing to when he's teaching about not self is the idea of an enduring static self that doesn't, that's unchanging through time, um, which we're carrying around in our heads as this representation. And that's why our practice always points us back to, to our, the actual experience of the present moment. Because, you know, you can sort of see that walking happens, uh, breathing happens, noticing happens, 
emotions happen. But the idea that there's a self to whom this this is happening is in it like in addition to it's not it's not a requirement for those things that they can happen whether there's anybody there or not, right? Who's who's owning it? So from time to time you'll catch glimpses of phenomena arising, and the symbol processor applying it to to me uh, either gets kind of weak or kind of vague or not very prominent, and then the the phenomena seems kind of fresh and new and kind of open. And, and maybe even mysterious. And that's why people like spiritual practices, because they, they bring you back to this, this same sense of immediacy and freshness. Um, uh, so the, the experiences are helpful because they, they provide encouragement, but ultimately what, what we're trying to do is develop this, uh, a profound insight into the nature of the mind's workings and seeing how the mind fabricates um, this category of chicken. Like if I say the word chicken, everybody has a chicken come up like in their mind, right? Um, chicken, 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 chicken. <laughs> so all these chickens are now walking around in our minds. Right? So, uh, and of course, that's exactly what language is for, right? So I can say, you know, the monkey threw the banana. And your mind will kind of create like a little scenario that makes that, that fulfills those, the linguistic requirements of a, you know, a noun, a subject, an object, a verb, and... You've got a banana throwing monkey in your mind for just a moment, um, and it's you know obviously really, really, really efficient for for communication, right? Because because of those those same approximately roughly the same kind of categories exist in your mind as mine because we share the same culture. When I say the word monkey, we both will know what I'm talking about, kind of, right? But my my monkey and your monkey might be significantly different. Like maybe you're like a naturalist who's studying primates for you know centuries or decades, and I'm you know I've just got a you know, child child's version of a monkey from a storybook, you know, Bob the monkey. Um, but nonetheless, we, like neither one of us would be confused by the monkey examples that that we might give each other. We'd still sort of recognize them as monkeys because our minds are so good at categorizing and processing and you know, symbolizing things. So uh, we, we never actually have perfectly 100% good communication because of this mismatch between people's symbols, but we always have conventionally good enough. We generally have conventionally good enough communication most of the time, <clears throat> especially when we're, we're talking about concrete things you know, in the outside world, like you know, striker, bell, right, sound. Right? We, 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 there's, no, there's very little difficulty there. But when it comes to, to non-physical things, then we get into trouble. You know, um, attitude, uh, love, um, generosity, like anything like that that's kind of, you know, what does it really mean? So um, we can really misunderstand each other when it comes to those aspects. So the, uh, when the, when the Buddha is talking about not-self, He's pointing out that the symbological manifestations in our minds that we call self, me, um, can't really account for form. Form is there whether it, there's me there or not. And all the form that you see, all the form that you experience, can't really belong to a me because it's not under me's control. And the whole catechism about and if it's not under your control, you know, is it, is it a refuge or is it not a refuge? Well, it's not a refuge. If something's not a refuge and it's not under your control, can you consider it you or yours, right? 
No, I guess not. Right? So, th- so just like the logic of it prevents you from being able to say, this phenomenon is part of me. It's definitely part of me. Right? It's like, eh, okay, I can see that somehow it's related to my experience of being a person, but I, it's not who I am. So the uh, uh, so this isn't meant to like strip you of, of any notion of self, nor is it meant to send you on some wild goose chase lo- looking for the the true self. It's meant to bring bring help you see for yourself, as it were, um, this. Uh, you could call it like a, a, a misunderstanding, right? And it's a misunderstanding because of an imprecision of, of, of observation of experience, what the Buddha would call um, inappropriate attention or unwise attention. So we, we move our hand and we think it's my hand, and we don't really think about how, you know, how could that possibly be my hand? I mean, what does that mean? Uh, what what the hell is even a hand? I, you know, like we we can't we can't afford to go there, most of our life, right? But when we when we're meditating, we're practicing intensely. We can really call everything into question, and when we do, we can see that all the presumptions about self are just not supported, right? And then the question will naturally you can say not so much the question will come up because there's no question that you really have to answer. Actually, what you actually have to do is just observe very very carefully and see the truth of things from this framework of Dhamma. If form is not self, and feeling is not self, and all those other categories are not self too, including consciousness, um, the worldly question, the worldling's question is, then who am I? Or what is myself? Right? The, 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 the Buddha doesn't go there. He doesn't say, and therefore yourself is, or therefore there is no self. He doesn't draw conclusions, right? Um, Instead, what he does is he he points again. See, here's the manifestation of form. Form arises, persists for a while, and then vanishes, experientially. Feeling arises, it persists for a while, vanishes, experientially. So, um, what the Buddha is kind of gently bringing us to, I'm going to maybe reveal part of the secret, is that there isn't anything, (laughs) right? Much less a self. Every all phenomena is constantly dynamic. Everything that we experience is, is basically a verb, rather than a noun. Right? And so, it, uh, now this, when you see it deeply, when you hear about it intellectually, it sounds kind of kind of weird, maybe a little spooky. But when you see it for yourself, dynamically in real time, you're so freaked out that you're not worried about whether there's a self or not. <laughs> you're 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 like. Oh my God! Like the whole world is made of complete, is made of concepts, and there's nothing solid here at all. And where can I put my feet? Like you don't know where to stand, literally, because it's all called into question. Your mind is deeply disturbed by the apparent uh, non-reality, non-solidity, non-dependableness, non-persistence, uh, non-graspability, non-ownability. Uh, uh, essencelessness of the world, the voidness of the world, is terrifying to the part of the mind that likes nice, nice neat categories and likes to put everything in a little pigeonhole and give it a label and know that it's right. right? Because in that world there is no, there is no answer. And there's no, there's no, there's no refuge in that in that world, and our minds don't like it at all. At first, the first encounter with that is not uh, 
It's not necessarily, a, you know, it's not a party. It can be, it can be pretty disconcerting. Um, and we can catch glimpses of it from time to time when um, we have like a, when we see the, like the fragility of our life when we have something like a, a close call with death, you know, a, a, a close accident or something like that happens to us or someone really near, near to us dies and we realize it's like in a deeper way our own mortality um, and that everything that we're kind of counting on in our life is utterly undependable because just the slightest little blood vessel breaking in your brain and it's all over, right? So there's no, uh, the idea that there's security in the world is obviously illusory. But ordinarily, we don't dwell on that. Right? It doesn't, partially it's because it doesn't do you any good to dwell on it. Um, but the opposite, which is to assume that the world is a secure, safe place, and that there's nothing to worry about, <laughs> and that's got downsides too. Right? So, uh, because sooner or later, yeah, the world will start breaking apart. And then if you haven't got, uh, if you haven't spent your time practicing well, then you really won't have a proper refuge for the mind. So then the mind will have to face the breakup of the world in a way that um, doesn't, doesn't offer uh, uh, an alternative, right? You just basically have to face the breakup of the world and that's all. With the Buddha Dhamma, you, you, you bring your mind to see the breaking up of the world in real time now, before it's time to die. And when, you, when the mind sees that, it has, it's, it's presented with something like an alternative. Uh, I think someplace in the Vasudhi Maga, the, um, the, 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 this encounter is, it can be likened to um, a, a ship at sea that's uh, out of sight of land looking for a place to land, looking for safety, looking for refuge, but it's just being, it's out at sea, it's being tossed and, and, and driven about by waves and currents, and, um, but the crew really wants to find safety, wants to find land. And so what they do is they've got a, 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 a crow that they keep in a cage on the ship, and they let the crow out, and the crow will fly up as high as it can and survey the perimeter to see if there's any place where it could get the hell off this damn ship. And if it can, it'll take off, and they'll see it going that way, and then the ship will follow it. If it can't see anything, it has to land on the ship, because otherwise it'll drown. Right? So, so the mind can't like leave this grip that it has on, on me, on the self, on this identity, on, on the safety of the world, or the, even the illusory safety of the world, um, uh, and, unless it can see an alternative. Right? And the alternative that the Buddha is suggesting is, Right? It's, it's the thing, it's where the mind um, has a tr something like a, a true refuge, you could say. It's a refugeless, the refuge-less refuge, maybe. So uh, part of what has to happen is when we see the illusoriness and the insubstantiality of the world and the, the undependability of it, the you know, utter... Um, transitoriness of it, then our, uh, our, our hearts can, can they kind of get re-educated over time when we see it over and over again. The heart can sort of turn from not being like so enamored with the world, so passionate about the world, so convinced that the world is where the answers are, and can kind of come to a place of like, yeah, you know what, that's just, 
it's just not going to work, is it? And so then that one's, one's vigor for trying to make the world be one's happy place becomes uh, much cooled, much, much dampened. And it can, sound kind of, it can, sound, can sound kind of depressing to hear it like that, but it's more like you go, oh, crap, I've been, you know, I've been going on this, carry this huge burden of expectations and hopes and dreams and desires, and now I can set it down. At least I can do that. Like, I don't have to, I don't have to count on the future anymore because I know, I already know, right? It's, it's doomed. <laughs> there's nothing, that, there's, no, there's no refuge there. And then you can just relax in the present moment and ex- you have something more like a sense of acceptance of the way things actually are. Um, but there's, there's more to do from that place, right? So this is the arising of dispassion and, and maybe um, you could call it um, repulsion or disgust or... Uh, but those, those words are tinged heavily with, with the idea of aversion, right? Um, but the, this, the arising of this kind of world-weary emotion, uh, seeing that there's no refuge in the world, is part of this re-education of the heart. Where the heart has to be prepared, and by, by heart I mean in this case that the, uh, our, our intuitive, emotional um, parts of the psyche that are uh, not necessarily linear or logical or rational, they're not part of what we ordinarily think of as our, our intellect. Um, uh, there's an old understanding in psychology that all the decisions that we make, we make with our hearts and then our intellects are brought in to justify those decisions we never actually decide something with our intellect because the intellect can, can, can rationalize anything right? so we can't, we can't intellectualize our way to freedom for this reason we have to convince our heart that there's nothing worth grasping here and until the heart's convinced, it won't happen. Right? But you can't convince the heart by talking to it. It can, it can only be convinced by, by showing it. So you have to see over and over and over again that the, um, the uncertainty of the world, the, the transitoriness of every state, the rising and passing away of things, including all emotions, all feelings, all thoughts, all physical experiences, they rise, they persist for a while, and they, 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 they end. Part of, the, part of the basis of our misunderstanding is that we think that this arising and passing away is part of a continuous fabric of reality that, um, that is continuous, it is kind of dependable, it is solid, and it is trustworthy, and, and that these things are, these are sort of like there's this fabric of solidity, and then there's things that happen in, within that fabric of solidity that rise and pass away. And that's, that's closer to the truth, but it turns out that the fabric itself is kind of doing the same thing. Right? So, so we have to kind of see that really all of reality is, is characterized by that. And that uh, the idea of solidity is something that our minds create. Uh, solidity, continuity, um, uh, desirability, trustworthiness, beauty, safety, all these things that our minds are imposing on the world or seeing somehow like out there in the world available for us to be part of. And, uh, and of course, part of that is like the me who's in this world, right, is part of that same fabric of reality. So, so the, the constant me is part of the sense of a background truth of solidity and continuity. 
It seems true until we really get down to the details of it, and then we start to see more clearly. So the more concentrated our minds get, and the more we look and we kind of direct our gaze in this direction towards the arising and passing away of things, or the uncertainty of things, or the mind's tendency to label, it's kind of like put a categorical label on something and, and then be done with it, and not really look at what's really going on there. Right? The tendency of the mind to just kind of dismiss things, having, having pigeonhole them. Right? So, you know, outside experiences as well as internal experiences. So when the, when the mind stops categorizing things like that, it, became, it can become really sensitive to what's uh, the dynamic nature of our experience. And that's where rising and passing away is really evident. Because, you know, everything, I mean, really, <laughs> it's really uh, it'd be quite amazing to see uh, how tremendously fast everything is changing. But from in a, like a first-person perspective, well, not to say that the, the teapot's dancing around in the tray, but more like my experience of the teapot is, it's incredibly dynamic. You know? But ordinarily, because I'm experiencing the teapot through my filters of symbology, it doesn't seem that way. But, it's, but really, it's changing uh, you know, 100 times a second from, uh, from the perspective of uh, maybe like raw data or closer to reality, closer to the truth. Um, None of that's particularly functional in the world of commerce and consumerism and et cetera, right? Um, so that's why there isn't a whole lot of encouragement for it in our culture. But what it does do is it, when, the, when you see this fairly deeply, multiple times, and the heart kind of accepts that this is the truth, that like, this is actually closer to the truth. You could say part of our, our, our inner motivation is to be aligned with truth. We, we, we almost intuitively want to be on the side of correct knowledge about how things are because it's kind of dangerous to be deluded about. Like if you think, um, you know, you're walking through a bank of fog and you think that you're on a, on a flat road and you don't realize you're near the edge of a precipice, you could, you know, you could die. So, so we're, we're always, we always want to know what the truth is and we want to take that into account. And this is extremely deep in our psyche. In fact, you could say it's the, it's the basis, of, it's a reason that we have a self, is it gives us a center from which to operate and, and to um, evaluate and to, and to generate uh, ideas about what's true about the world. So humans have always done this, I, I, animals do it too. We're, we're always trying to build a map in our minds of what, uh, that, an accurate representation of truth, the, the, the way, the world that we live in. Whenever we give ourselves significant new information, we experience significant new information, then um, our kind of our internal uh, uh, truth map has to be updated with that new information. So, you know, like say that one day you, you discover with absolute certainty that everybody with blue eyes was actually a robot. Right? <laughs> right, so then, like, suddenly that would, you'd have to update your map, right? And go, that means I'm a robot. You know, so, so, uh, you know, what does you know, what does this mean? So, so, but you couldn't if it was absolutely in, incontrovertible, right? You see it with your own direct experience. You know, this is not something you're making up, right? There it is, right? Something that's that kind of concrete, true. Um, then this internal map has to be updated and take that into account, so that going forward, uh, that you'll be more more aligned with the truth.
especially if it's something that caused you pain or difficulty in the past. Now, now you know better, and so you, you learn. So um, when, you're, when you deeply see impermanence, and you, you deeply see the suffering that comes from grasping at those things which are impermanent because they cannot be grasped. Right? The idea of grasping is there's a solid thing and there's a solid uh, grasper that can you know, grab onto that thing and hang onto it and keep it forever. Right? Or at least for a, a good, good chunk of time. And that whole idea is based on a misunderstanding. It's a very convenient misunderstanding from biology's perspective, but you know, from the perspective of freedom, it's, it's uh, problematic. So when you see deeply into impermanence, then you can, you can also see the, the futility of grasping and how when one grasps at things, even the idea of a, of, of a me, that grasping is necessarily going to be disappointed because of the impermanent nature of everything, because of this dynamic nature. Um, it's uh, the grasping itself is based on a misunderstanding of the truth, and so it's inherently flawed. It's inherently doomed. Right? So grasping is always doomed, and grasping always leads to trouble, unsatisfactoriness, because because it's going to be disappointed. Right? Anytime you have a anytime you have expectations that are out of alignment with reality, disappointment is inevitable. Right? So you could say that's what grasping does. It always leads to some kind of disappointment. And that's what unsatisfactoriness is, or that's what Tuka is. So, okay. Dukkha, Anicca, and Anatta. These are like three sides of the same coin. <laughs> uh, they're, they're, they're deeply intertwined with each other. If you see one, the other two are right around the corner from it. They're, 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 they're almost uh, uh, sharing the same identity in a way. The, the, the truth map in our, in our psyche, when it sees impermanence once, or maybe a couple of times, can go, huh, that was funny, interesting. I'm just going to put that in the category of bizarre stuff that I don't have to think about. <laughs> it sees it a fair bit, and it's like, oh my god, that's just, that's awful. Uh, that's, or that's, that's really troubling, that's deeply troubling. I hope that doesn't happen again. Boy, you know? So people actually back away from practice when they, when they have experiences like that. But if you keep seeing it over and over and over again, and every time you look, you see it, and every, at some point you realize, oh my God, it's true now, it's always been true, it will always be true, there is no alternative. It has to be this way. This is the truth. And maybe you feel like, world's falling out from underneath your feet. You feel like you're on the precipice of death, maybe. Depends on how, you're, how your, own, your own reaction to it is. It can be pretty mild, actually. It can be like, oh, the Buddha was right. You know? He was totally right. But see, if, if you have faith in the Buddha, that gives you this tremendous um, uh, like safeguard against falling into any kind of despair or, or, or uh, tendency to flee this truth. Right? When you, you, can, you can face the truth when you know that the, when you kind of trust in the Buddha. Because the Buddha is saying that this is the doorway to Nibbana. And Nibbana is the highest happiness. Right? So in order to get to this highest happiness, you have to let go of something first. The thing that you have to let go of is your belief in uh, non-dukkha, non-anicca, and non-anatta. Right? Or nicca, sukha, and atta. 
So when, when, when the mind does that, uh, when you do that intellectually, you're, you're, you kind of, you've entered into the path in a, um, a necessary but not complete way. But when you're, when you're like deep in your heart, you, you, you really accept the truth. Like the, or the, you say the heart accepts it on its own. You can't make your heart accept anything. Right? You're not in charge of your heart either. <laughs> Even that's on that top. Right? But you know you can you can educate the heart. You can expose it to, to information, and eventually that information sinks in, and then the heart goes, "Okay, I got to take. I've got to now. I've got to take this into account." And it, the the map of the world gets changed, and now it's updated with this new information. And when the map of the world gets changed with this new information, then you can say the world looks different. Right? The what seemed like worth pursuing before might not seem like worth pursuing. And what seemed like trivial before might seem really important, or really worth your time, or worth your while. Um, and then, of course, you could say the, the usual motivations of the ego, which are all based on the, the fundamental delusion about atta, fundamental delusion about sukha, and fundamental delusion about uh, nietzsche. So, uh, the ideas of permanence and reliability and continuity and solidity and beauty and self and other and all these other categories that the mind participates in. That, that's pretty much where our egos live. And the ego doesn't go away any more than the body goes away when, when you uh, advance along the path. But its, its role in your life becomes less prominent. It's, uh, it's no longer in the driver's seat in a way because you've seen through it you realize that it's not a very good driver. <laughs> and so now the ego has to be more like in the passenger seat. So, so its motivations to go, go running after things um, are much easier to restrain because you're like, I, I know where this goes, this is stupid. You, know? you, you, you can sort of like let stuff go a lot easier because in a deep way you've seen the truth, you know the truth. Even if you haven't been able to fully actualize it in your life, in every possible modality, you're not like fully enlightened, fully an arahant or anything, but you you've seen okay the, the Buddha, what the Buddha is talking about here, is absolutely fundamentally incontrovertibly, deeply profoundly true, and uh, this the whole teaching is utterly trustworthy. So this is where um, these like what they call the fetters are falling away. Right? So the fetter of doubt, like is this going to work? Am I on the right track here? You know that. It's not really there anymore when you when you see this this thing and you've seen it deeply enough. Again, when you sort of see it, you get glimpses of it. You're like, "Well, that's weird," or, or maybe, "Huh," but it doesn't it doesn't change your worldview. But when you see it enough, it can't help but change your worldview, right? Uh, there's a kind of a, 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 a deep um, uh, recognition of the implications of it that uh, changes everything. And then, um, the idea that there is a solid, reliable, continuing self um, is apparent to you on its face to be uh, not really true. Right? It, again, it has a kind of a conventional truth. Um, so there, there, is this, there is this phenomenon of self. Right? You can't say that there isn't because everybody's got one and you still have one too, right? It's still there. But at the same time, you know that if you look really, really carefully, it's not what you, it's not what it appears in the surface. It's kind of a mirage, really. So you can't say that the mirage doesn't exist because the mirage does exist. But you could also say that the mirage isn't what we take it to be. 
And so this is closer to what the not-self teaching is trying to get us to see. And to some extent, talking about it is um, worthwhile if it helps clarify and um, prevent us as practitioners from going down unfruitful uh, side roads and tangents and like <laughs> seeking the true self. Um, <clears throat> now, the teaching on, on the true self, right? I don't want to disparage it because A, I haven't practiced it, and B, I, I suspect that uh, uh, maybe what they're, into, what they're referring to as the true self um, uh, might be something very much like uh, a deep understanding of Anicca, right? Uh, that the, the, the false self is the, the self that's grounded in a misperception of uh, continuity and permanence. And uh, the, those, those perceptions of continuity and permanence, um, they cover up, they, they kind of um, they disguise the world uh, from us. We can't really see the world the way it really is. Because, again, this is the, the symbol processing part of the mind. So weirdly, or strangely, or interestingly, our practice, when we're doing it, that's part of the reason that we're on retreat, is that we're... We're dropping all the mind's preoccupations, focusing on what's happening in the present moment with this framework of Dhamma. And we're using these formal practices of meditation to help get the mind more and more collected, more and more continuously with this object of uh, our, our meditation. And when the mind has that degree of presence uh, long enough, you can say out of the corner of its eye, it will start to notice things like that, that um, like one moment you're following the breath and everything's cool and then you hear a sound and you see with crystal clarity that the sound is a causal condition for the arising of a thought. The thought doesn't have a, uh, uh, the thought isn't your thought. You didn't choose to think the thought. You see the process of thinking happening in real time in a way that you wouldn't ordinarily do. Um, ordinarily, we don't pay that much attention to our thoughts. We just we don't we don't notice their 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 origin and their cessation. But you start to see like thoughts come up. You see them hang out for a while, and then you see them stop and vanish completely. And again, the, the initial reaction to this is like, hmm, that's kind of cool. But the implication of it hasn't kind of gotten all the way to the bottom yet. So, uh, uh, so that's like an indication that you're on the right track with the practice. The practice eventually will become can, can become very very thorough going. That you don't really you're not really ever falling asleep. You're not really not noticing stuff. You're always on top of things. And when you're always on top of things, you're noticing everything that's arising and passing away in mind and body, um, from the moment you wake up in the morning to the moment that you fall asleep at night and maybe you're like not sleeping very much too so this is like fairly intensive retreat practice and uh, um, some people uh, have this whole uh, deep seeing into the nature of reality uh, the nature of mind the nature of the aggregates let's call it that it's deep seeing into the nature of the aggregates happen uh, you know on their first retreat and other people it takes several retreats to get to that point um, Sometimes it's just a matter of getting just the right instruction or having just the right conditions or having prepared oneself in just the right way. You don't really know. It's kind of a karmic mystery well, uh, exactly what causes it to arise. But you can, you're, you're, you're dramatically improving the, 
the likelihood that, that uh, an understanding like this will, will arise uh, when, uh, uh, when you're on retreat. So, uh, so with that, you can, you can see more clearly why uh, Venerable Kondanya's realization was phrased the way it was. Everything that has the nature to arise has the nature to cease. The emphasis is on everything. Right? Our minds are the, are the source of all things. There are no things in the world. So, yeah, that's, that's something that's worth seeing. And that's, that's what really gets the ball rolling. Right? You can get a little hint of it by reading the suttas and hearing Dhamma talks and um, kind of like, like intellectual, yeah, okay, it's, it's kind of sensible, right? You can, you can relate to it intellectually. But it's, uh, it, it's the, when, when you see it the way Kondanya saw it, um, it's, it's a little, it's kind of hair-raising. It's like it's, it's uh, exhilarating and maybe a little terrifying at the same time because it's, uh, it's so all-encompassing. And it's a... Uh, and, and when someone really sees it, then you can imagine that you know, they're going like... <laughs> and they get some expression on their face, right? And so that's why the Buddha goes, Kondanya, you see, don't you? <laughs> yeah, Kondanya, truly Kondanya sees. Kondanya understands. And hence he got the name. Anya Kondanya. Kondanya who understands. <laughs> so I hope I answered your question. Satipatthana Sutta is a, um, a description of a very systematic approach to bringing the mind to that state. And breath meditation is the entryway. Is like the entryway. In fact, if you're really, really good at breath meditation, you can really keep your mind on it. Like you say, it kind of really engages your mind, and you find it sustainable. All those realizations can happen in your mind, again, sort of out of the corner of your eye, as it were. You don't have to sort of go looking for those things. You're just paying attention to the breath, and then part of you notices that thoughts arise and pass away, and so, and that feelings arise and pass away. And part of you notices what the body's doing, and so there's mindfulness of the body, there's mindfulness of feeling, there's mindfulness of mind, and you're looking at these things whenever, because you're so deeply immersed in the doctrine, um, you can't help but sort of notice them in the framework of um, the Buddhist teachings. So you're, you're, there's mindfulness and dhammas going on there too. <clears throat> so in that sense, you could say that, uh, just mindfulness of the breath can fulfill the, the whole um, the whole schema of the, the Satipatthana Sutta, the four foundations of mindfulness. And that's a practice that leads to enlightenment. All you have to do is do it. Do it perfectly for seven days, and then you become an anagami. At least. Maybe an arahant.
But according to the sutta, seven days is the minimum. We're going to be here for 30 days, so you guys should be able to do it like four or five times. <laughs> <laughs> Any questions? Okay. Yes, so, uh, for me, morning meditation is always like really difficult. Mm-hmm. Like four times out of five, I'm just like nodding and mm-hmm. falling asleep. But it's not like it's not even like a relaxing, just kind of falling back to sleep. It's mm-hmm. like like a stressful, like trying to stay awake. Mm-hmm. Not really even falling asleep. Just like in this like foggy state you know? yeah it's like I just at the end of that I just wonder like is there's glimpses of you know clarity but even is like is that our like productive mm. even going through all that one of the problems with structure is that um, it, it can act as a substitute a substitute for one's own volition right so um if you get a bunch of people, a bunch of unskillful people, and you put them in jail, and you keep them from lying and stealing and killing and stuff, they're not really that virtuous, right? They're just being restrained from expressing their, their unvirtue. Um, so when we're, we're coming and sitting because it's time to come and sit. And uh, uh, we our, our own motivation isn't really there to do it. Then it's quite natural that there'll be this kind of uh, inner inner criminal who hasn't uh, <laughs> who hasn't really bought into this reform program here. So, um, again, it's, this is the, the, the truth about the heart. When the heart wants to do something, it's only you can't stop it, really. So, if it doesn't want to do meditation, you can fight with it with your will, but the heart's going to win until you convince it until the heart goes, oh, this is really worth my time. It's way more important than, you know, nodding off. Um, and the way to get the heart, again, the way to get the heart to do anything is through persuasion, through um, uh, providing content that the heart can relate to. So think of your heart as like this... Um, inner committee maybe that needs to be sold on the idea um, now at some point you were sold on the idea because you ended up coming to the monastery but the the initial emotional appeal of it and the subsequent uh, like intellectual action that took it took to get you here um, the intellectual action can kind of keep going out of the initial momentum and the heart might have already sort of like lost interest so, so you have to reignite the interest, and there's lots of ways to do that. 
<clears throat> one of them is the classic ones is to simply listen to teachings right you hear you hear the Dhamma and part of you goes I, I just I got to do this I really want to and this is very important and <clears throat> another one is the reflections on death right uh, you don't know it, yeah. so uh, there these are all techniques that are meant to help build uh, a sense of urgency and motivation and uh, and the Buddha realized that this is one of our biggest challenges as practitioners. Uh, this very last exhortation, as you know, meditate, lest you regret it later. If you, if you neglect to meditate, when you have the chance, sooner or later the chance will pass, and then, and then where will you be? So we have to kind of keep, keep bringing our heart back to this truth, to this seeing this understanding. So the five daily reflections, the problem with them is they, they get kind of routinized and we kind of lose, they lose their impact. And so one technique that can be very helpful is, um, it's not taught that much in our tradition as such, but uh, it's, it's in there. Uh, the Buddha calls it, uh, calls it wiser reflecting. So like even the even the, the routinized uh, chants that we do when we're when we're ref uh, about to eat our meal, um, you know, wiser reflecting. I use all this food not for fun, etc. Um, if we're really wisely reflecting, we're taking those topics on board and using our intellect to kind of explore them. And if you're sitting and your mind just won't get with the program, then one thing that's really useful to do sometimes is, is to do, uh, spend some time doing a reflection and find one that has some interest to you. Like maybe the reflection on death is kind of uh, classic because everybody's interested in death, even if they don't, they're not in any hurry to get there. And it's a very compelling topic. Uh, right? Because we all know we have to face it, and so anything we could do to, to study for that test would be, you know, maybe worth worth our while. And uh, uh, so, so when you reflect on death, you're not trying to get the mind into like this morbid state of, of feeling doomed, but into a state of like, God, I, I'm not really ready for death. You know, like I, I know it's coming, and when it comes. Like if I had to face it right now. That wouldn't be so great because I'm not I'm not actually prepared. So uh, you know, I what, you want to kind of get the mind to go like, what should I do? What what, what can I do to get prepared for death? Uh, this this inevitable thing that's going to come to me, whether I like it or not, that no one can take, no one can delay, no one can take it on for me. I'm just I'm just going to have to face it all by myself, and the enormity of it, the loss of this whole existence. So so you kind of use your your mind, your intellect. Uh, and its discursive abilities in, this, in a kind of a skillful way by taking up this theme and reflecting on it to help build a sense of urgency. Um, and for, for, for many people, building a sense of urgency and motivation is, is part of what they have to do regularly as part of their like, almost mental hygiene to keep them on track. Um, other people have to like, kind of calm the mind and soothe the mind and, and ease the mind so it's not so anxious and sort of like flying around all the time, right? So, they, so then uh, a, a skillful reflection in that case might be something more like a reflection on uh, the Buddhas, the qualities of the Buddha. And then you can have kind of like this beautiful sense of faith and confidence in the Buddha that can arise, a sense of sweetness there. Or maybe uh, do one of the uh, Brahma Viharas as a technique. So, uh, so 
part of our job as practitioners is to learn enough about our own minds, to learn our, to learn our own minds well enough to be able to say, oh, what's the mind like right now? What's the weather inside like? It's bored, aimless, restless, and unmotivated. It wants to go to sleep. It wants to do all kinds of things that aren't related to what we're supposed to be doing right now. It feels like it's been pushed around, bullied into being here right now. It's, uh, it's feeling rebellious. That's my, the, mood, the mood that my mind has. Right? So if you know that, then you're going to what can I do about that? Right? Uh, rather than just going, well, I guess that's the way it is, <laughs> and giving up. Right? Um, uh, you know, then you kind of use, your, again, your intellectual capacity to go, okay, so uh, you know, what would the Buddha say would be a, a worthwhile thing to do? So there's so that's one of the, the values of reading the suttas is there's you know, uh, the the suttas are actually chock full of instruction. You know, we tend to think that the, that the Buddha didn't teach that much. He didn't teach meditation, but he did. <laughs> it's this that the language is such that we don't recognize it necessarily. But um, uh, uh, one of the ones that's pretty easy to see is in the Anattalakana Sutta. You know? He gives us direct instruction on how to conduct this training in uh, understanding um, the not-self doctrine, which is uh, you know, all form, you know, all form, whether internal or external, gross or subtle, etc., all form should be seen as it really is thus. This is not mine. I am not this. This is not myself. So, like, quite literally, Consider your body and say to yourself, this is not mine. I am not this. This is not myself. Or if there's a feeling, if you're experiencing a feeling, a painful feeling in your foot or something, this, you just recognize a feeling and just reflect. It's not really mine. It's just feeling. Right? So this is a way of, of like giving yourself some space from the feeling of being, from the experience of being identical with form or identical with feeling or identical with perceptions. <clears throat> so he's giving very concrete, very practical instructions. And, you know, because our, the, you could say the cause or the, the part of our mind which generates this perception of self <clears throat> is based on symbols. And, and, our, and the way that we use language is based on symbols. It makes complete sense to use language to counteract the symbol generator. So you, like, try it sometimes. Just like, you know, look at your hand and go, "It's not mine." And it, 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 part of the part of the mind goes, <laughs> kind of, kind of reverberates with the, 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 uh, the like, almost like cognitive dissonance, right? And for a moment, you get a, you get a little glimpse of it. It actually isn't yours, right? It's just there. So, so uh, by finding the right instruction for the right condition. When the weather in the mind is uh, restless, then maybe some calming reflection would be helpful. If the mind is feeling sort of like fit and ready, then dive right in and you know, go after your object and see if you can hold on to it for increasingly long periods of time. If the mind is like drooping over and falling asleep over and over again, it's, it's worthwhile to try to diagnose whether this is um, you know, a, a kind of mutiny at, at the bounty, mutiny of bounty, kind of a, uh, the crew doesn't want to go, right? Or whether um, the the like just it's physiological sleepiness that's triggered by the conditions. So you're sitting down, you're relaxed, you close your eyes. 
And so sleepiness is kind of a natural result of that, in which case you should fight it. I try to retrain the mind to not uh, slide towards sleepiness every time you close your eyes. But it depends on whether you're sleep deprived. So you have to kind of know your own mind. Um, one, there's no one size fits all. And uh, sometimes uh, advice that you get about how to deal with sleepiness might work like sometimes and sometimes it might not work. So you, you, as you go along, you have to try out more and more things to, to broaden the toolkit so you've got a lot of uh, ways of responding to the different conditions. And yeah, sometimes your, bet that your best effort doesn't do anything. You, you reflect on death and then you, <laughs> you fall asleep anyway. Um, that's okay. Right? But the, the part, of what, part of what counts here is that you're, um, you're having experiences that you potentially can learn from. You can always look back and go, oh, that meditation this morning just didn't work out. Um, if that happens again, what will I do? And then come up with a strategy and just keep kind of playing around with it. And um, try to make meditation more interesting somehow. Yeah. Um, a lot of times it's just a matter of getting into the groove and then the mind will be just fine. But if you can't get into the groove, then you just keep kind of flopping around. So another technique that can help, one I've used a lot, is um, memorize a sutta and then re chant it in your mind. Okay, so recite like the Dhamma Chakrapalatana Sutta and um, you know, try to be very precise about it as though you're fully articulated, maybe even like <laughs> move your lips and sort of like mouth it to yourself that you're actually kind of mouthing the words and that the energy and the effort and the devotion that it takes to do that can be just enough to inspire you to like take it seriously again. Right? can remind you of why you're here and what you're trying to do, and what's important and what's not important, right? And getting additional sleep really isn't that important. Um, and zoning out for an hour is not gonna do you any good, so, um, uh, you know, try to take advantage of the time that's here, and uh, get your mind, get, get the rest of the crew on board for it. Because we're always, we're always dealing with some degree of inner disagreement about how best to use our time when we're trying to meditate, until, until the mind really gets into the into this the groove of it until it gets really um, pleased by meditation. Meditation can be very pleasing and uh, contentment providing. It can be a, a, almost a refuge unto itself. So the mind's like, oh God, I'm so tired of like, you know, dealing with all this crap, I want to go meditate. <laughs> and then like, it's not so hard, you sit down and meditate, it's like, oh, there it is, mm, oh, the breath, oh, it's so great. <laughs> I love it. Uh, I hope the bell never rings. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's possible. Maybe it's not happening right away, but it's, the mind can do that. The mind's amazing. It's amazing what the mind can do. <laughs>